Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. I think probably the, the initial impetus came from what's going on here in terms of Bulgarians struggling to make sense of their recent history, their lived memory and their lived history. But then also he saw those patterns are, are something very human, very universal. You know, how do we negotiate between our personal memories, which can be very positive, of a time that is also very negative. Memory and nostalgia are some of the richest raw materials that authors mine for fiction. Evoking the past and how it shapes the present has been the hallmark of some of the greatest writers in history. This year's winner of the International Booker Prize is a Bulgarian novel which deals in this theme in a creative, playful, and thought-provoking way, as if Proust had co-authored a book with the screenwriter Charlie Kaufman. The novel is called Time Shelter and was written by the Bulgarian novelist Georgi Gospodinov, and it's been hugely successful, not just in its Bulgarian homeland, but also abroad. The character at the heart of the book is a mysterious crypto-philosophical doctor who opens a clinic for Alzheimer's patients, which allows them to immerse themselves in a replicated era of their choice, which they best remember, as a way for them to reconnect with their memories. But this institution becomes so successful in its meticulous reconstruction of the past that it spins out of control and its therapeutic methods are usurped by society at large and politicians. Suddenly, recreating the past becomes a national, even continental obsession with wild and unpredictable results. This is a fundamentally European novel in that same tradition as Thomas Mann or W.G. Sebald, there's something a bit dark and unhealthy at the heart of all these memories, which this novel allows us to think about and contemplate. It's an unusual work, quite surreal, but with a fresh new voice and a creative construction. If you want to read something new, this is it. The book was originally written in Bulgarian, so one reason that it got such visibility and recognition is in large part thanks to my guest today, who is Angela Rodel, the translator of the book, who is a longtime collaborator of the novelist Georgi Gospodinov. As a translator, she is the co-winner of the International Booker Prize. Angela is originally American from Minnesota, and as she explains in the episode, she ended up in Bulgaria almost by chance 30 years ago and has built a real understanding of that country's culture and language. What better person to talk to about this book than someone who can help interpret the original intent and cultural context for non-Bulgarian audiences, i.e. us. I've long been fascinated by the role of translators. How do they work? How do they recreate the style? How do they choose certain words? I've always wanted to interview a translator about their work to better understand their role and their approach. The great Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges was also a translator himself of English books into Spanish. 
I recently came across a short passage where he talks about the linguistic differences between English and Spanish. I've actually included that snippet in the interview for Angela to comment on. So at one point, you'll hear an older man's voice with a Spanish accent. That's not me or Angela. That's Borges. So I'm here today with Angela Rodel, the translator of the book Time Shelter by Georgi Gospodinov, uh, which recently won last month the International Booker Prize. Congratulations on your prize, Angela. Uh, where are you joining us from? Thank you. I'm joining from Sofia, Bulgaria, where I live. So you are, it sounds like you are originally American, currently living in Sofia, and I'm sure there's a fascinating story about your journey to that country and to becoming a Booker Prize winning translator. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the path to get where you are today? I'm originally from Minnesota. I'm a American. Uh, and in, it's really interesting in my high school, like this was the early 90s. I'm going to date myself here, but early 90s, one of the French teachers, I guess the winds of Perestroika were blowing through uh, Minnesota as well, not just Eastern yeah. Europe. And she started teaching Russian. And so I thought, well, that's kind of cool. I'd always been interested in Russian literature as a sort of, you know, depressed teenager who doesn't love Dostoevsky when they're 16, <laughs> right? So, um, I, uh, I, I signed up for Russian, which is really unusual at like a public high school, you know, in Minnesota. And, um, yeah. so then when I got to college, I was at Yale as an undergrad and I, they have an amazing Slavic department. So I was, of course, continued studying Russian there, Russian literature, Russian language, but they also had the Yale Slavic chorus. And because I've always been a singer, I thought, oh, this is cool. It'll like combine my interest in music in Eastern Europe. And I went to the first rehearsal and heard Bulgarian music and was completely blown away. I don't know if you're familiar with Bulgaria. Has I'm a not. I'm not familiar. And, and what was so mind blowing about Bulgarian music? It's the women's style of singing. It's so loud. It's so strident and they have a really interesting, very dissonant um, type of harmony. So anybody who hasn't heard it, go to YouTube right now and type in the mystery of Bulgarian voices, Le Mystère de Voix Bulgar in French, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you will hear what I think is the most beautiful music in the world. Um, <laughs> this is wow. a really incredible women's singing. And so... I got really interested in Bulgarian. At that time, there weren't that many Bulgarians in the U.S. It was hard to, to learn Bulgarian language in the U.S. But um, So I applied for a Fulbright grant to come and study after I graduated from Yale. So that was 1996-97 and fell in love with Bulgaria, with the people, with the culture. And um, yeah, it's been pretty much... Must have been such an exciting time in those early days after the fall of the Berlin Wall. It must have been yeah, really uh, <laughs> full of opportunity and excitement. It's interesting. I was there, you know, I, I started becoming interested in Bulgaria like early 90s. But I didn't have a real, this was, I mean, people, young people listening to this probably won't understand. This was before the internet. You couldn't just like Google like Bulgaria. <laughs> and so we were listening to records and like discs of this music. And so I think I had a really unrealistic idea of what Bulgaria was, very romantic. And then when I got here in 1996, it was one of the biggest crises that Bulgaria went through. Basically, they had hyperinflation. It was like, you've heard stories about Weimar Germany. Like seriously, I wouldn't change my money until I was going to mm -hmm. buy something because it would be worth like <laughs> half less if I wait, you know, if I change it in the an morning hour. and then wanted to buy yeah, something later. Yeah. It was a really, really difficult time for Bulgarians. I mean, many people lost their life savings, banks collapsed, there was a political crisis. But to me, it was, you know, it made me even more interested in Bulgaria because it, you know, it definitely disabused me of all my romantic notions about Bulgaria being this mm. place where people are walking around in, you know, native costumes and singing folklore. <laughs> but... 
you know, as an American, all the things we take for granted about, you know, things that our civil society, our, you know, our economy that we think they're just, you know, they exist. And we're like, no, this is actually super fragile. And we need to do everything we can to try and preserve all these incredible, you know, benefits we have. And so that, you know, was a really interesting kind of turning point for me as a, as a person as well to be here in Bulgaria at that time. Yeah. And so very quickly, you must have picked up the language and what happened? One bright morning, you thought to yourself, I'm going to become a translator. No, I think actually, there's an opportunity here. How I learned Bulgarian is kind of funny because I, you know, was applying for a Fulbright and they had a Bulgarian woman at Yale. I don't know where they found her to interview me. And she happened to be very chatty. And if you know Russian, it's kind of like Spanish and Italian. You can more mm-hmm. or less figure out. And so she was like, I was just like, yes, no. And at the end, she's like, great, you speak Bulgarian. And I did not speak Bulgarian. I speak Russian, <laughs> you know, and, and faked my way. And so they didn't give me any money to study. They like, I screwed myself because they said, <laughs> okay, you're enrolling in Sofia University alongside the Bulgarians. And I was like, oh, man. And so basically, good thing I was a linguistics major. So I like got my grammar and sat down and every night with flashcards. And it was a rough couple months in the beginning. I didn't really, wasn't really able to talk to anybody. But if I wanted to have friends and, you know, meet people in Bulgaria, I needed to learn Bulgarian. So I'd say at the end of that year, I'd pretty much, you know, forgotten, replaced my Russian with Bulgarian. And I didn't start translating then, though, because I didn't... um It's only when I came back. So then I I went to the U.S. and was doing my graduate work at UCLA and um, mostly with music, actually, uh, not so much with Mm -hmm. the language. I came back in 2004 for another year. And that was when through a friend of mine who is a musician, I met a bunch of Bulgarian writers who were my ex-husband. My first husband was a a writer, a poet, but also a uh, musician. And he kind of introduced me to this crowd of Bulgarian writers. And that was when I really started. And at first it was sort of like, oh, I've got this poem, you know, why don't you try to translate it? Because there really aren't that many native speakers of English who know Bulgarian well enough. Or, oh, I've got this short story. And I started doing it just for friends, for fun. And then all of a sudden I realized, well, there's a niche here because there's so much amazing literature being created and it's nobody knows about it outside of Bulgaria. And I seem to maybe have a talent for this. And so I just sort of, you know, fell into it. I never had thought about that this could be a career. This could be something I could do professionally. It was just sort of being in the right place at the right time. What was the first novel that you translated? You dip your toes in but uh, with, with a bit of poetry But at some point, you must have made a leap to a pretty meaty piece of work. And I'm wondering what that was. That was a novel called Party Headquarters by a writer named Georgi Tenev. I actually um, won a pen translation grant for a collection of his short stories. And looking back now, I was so naive. And he is such a difficult writer. He writes something that's kind of very dystopian, kind of on the... It's it's very literary, but also very... um, edgy and very ambiguous. Like it's not Mm -hmm. clear, you know, what exactly is happening with the plot. The language he uses is very, um, he derives from many different registers. If I had known how difficult that book would have been, I like knowing what I know now, I would have been like, what? Are you kidding me? It sounds... It sounds like Bulgarian Faulkner almost. Exactly, exactly. Bulgarian Thomas Pynchon. Let's put it that way. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, wow, wow. oh, oh you <laughs> went so deep. Something those lines. But I was just like, oh, yeah, sure, you know, no problem. And now I look back and I'm like, what was I thinking? And there's definitely things that I, you know, would change now. And, and, uh, Interesting. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And unfortunately, we um, – but no, we did eventually find a, a publisher for that. It's available on Open Letter. Um 
And it's a really interesting book kind of about like the transition and about the 90s in Bulgaria. Interesting, interesting work. But yeah, that was the first novel I translated. Um, I, I would like to think I've, I've learned a lot since then, but it was, a, it was an interesting challenge. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Let's talk about the Bulgarian language. And, and we're going to listen very uh, quickly to a passage that I've discovered recently about Jorge Luis Borges, the Argentinian writer who is also a translator from English into Spanish. And so we're going to listen to that now. What am I reading in English? I find English far finer language than, than Spanish. Why? Well, there are many reasons. Firstly, English is both a Germanic and a Latin language. You go to registers. For example, for any idea you take, you have two words. Those words do not mean exactly the same. For example, if I say rigor, they're not exactly the same thing as saying, saying kingly. But if I say fraternal, not the same as saying brotherly. Or dark and obscure, those words are different. It would make all the difference, speaking, for example, of the Holy Spirit, it would make all the difference in the world in a poem, if I wrote about the Holy Spirit, not about the Holy Ghost. Since ghost is a fine, dark Saxon word, while spirit is a light, it's a Latin word. Well, and then there is another reason. The reason is that I think that of all, of all languages, English is the most physical of all languages. Most what? Physical. Mm -hmm. For example, you can't, for example, he loomed over. You can't very well say that in Spanish. Asomo? But not exactly the same. And then you have, then in English, you can do, well, you can do any, almost anything with verbs and prepositions. For example, to laugh off, to dream away. Those things can't be said in Spanish. To live down something to live up to something. You can't say those things in Spanish. It can't be said, or in, a, or in a, the Romance language. And so based on this passage we've just heard, what do you think are some of the interesting connections between Bulgarian and English? What are some of the challenges, ambiguities uh, that you might face in general or in particular in this novel, Time Shelter. Yeah, I was, I love this. Uh, I, I hadn't heard this and I'm so glad that you sent this to me because first of all, serendipity, Georgi Gospodinov is a huge fan of Borges. That's one of his biggest inspirations. So I'm, <laughs> I sure, feel like, I'm sure reading the book, yeah. it seems like it, it, it might've been. Yeah. But also I have taught translation for 10 years at Sophie University because I am a linguist by training. I was really happy to see Borges talking about linguistic structure because I felt like mm -hmm. that's one of the things with my students that I really, I think all of us want to get to the quote unquote fun stuff. We want to talk about dialects. We want to talk about jargon, you know, but, mm -hmm. but the fact of the matter is like what exactly what Borges was talking about, the differences in the linguistic structure. So like Bulgarian, what he was talking about, like phrasal verbs in English, Slavic mm -hmm. languages are actually pretty okay in that respect, but they do it with prefixes. So you can do mm -hmm. a lot of like fun things that would be, you know, what does he say? Dreaming up or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you can do that sort of thing in Slavic languages, but you have to do it with prefixes. So there's a slightly different workaround, but ah. the problem that I see between Bulgarian and English is the verbal systems are very different. Like Bulgarian and a lot of Slavic languages have much more complicated verbal systems. They have this imperfective and perfective, whether or not the action is continuing or repeated. And um, Bulgarian specifically has this really cool um, mood, which uh, linguists think is actually adopted from Turkish because Bulgaria is part of the Ottoman Empire for 500 years. Mm -hmm. That is, if you are witness something firsthand, you say it in one way, or if you've just kind of like reporting hearsay, you say it in another. And this can mm -hmm. give a really um, interesting flavor to conversation and to 
the way a narrator or a character is um, relating to the information they're relaying. And this is something mm -hmm. we don't have at all in English. So sometimes it's very tricky to get that sense of like, okay, I'm distancing myself from this statement, you know? <laughs> did, did you encounter that in, in Time Shelter? Oh, yeah. And, yeah, it's everywhere. And, and yeah. how did you resolve it in English? I mean, I, when I'm talking to my students, I call it the yeah, right tense. You can say something and be like, yeah, right, you know, so-and-so mm -hmm. did such and such. You can kind of um, portray in sort of lexical workarounds that the speaker is distancing themselves from like the veracity of what they're saying. But um, sometimes you have to just say supposedly, which I think is clunky and not very elegant. Mm -hmm. But yeah, all Bulgarian writers use it because it's a very, I would say, beautiful and subtle way to get levels of reliability into your narrators. So yeah, that's a constant thing that that, that I have to deal with. And uh, <laughs> there's a passage in the book, there's several passages in the book where there's a use of Cyrillic alphabet, Cyrillic letters. Yes. Uh, and, and that's been maintained in the original form. And it makes sense because there's a description afterwards of the shape of the letter and the little hat on the end and so on. Why did you come to that decision? Why not use a Roman alphabet and, and, and play around with that? Or did you have a sense that you really needed to stick to the original description of the letters? Or Yeah, we talked about this with the publishers at Live Right. You know, the American edition came out first. And so we had talked with them and I and Georgi both felt pretty strongly that, I mean, there's a... <laughs> A moment of pride because actually like Kiro and Methodius, the two monks that quote unquote founded this Cyrillic alphabet were actually um, Byzantine Bulgarians. And it's actually many people think it's the Russian alphabet, but Bulgarians would beg to differ. They say it's the Bulgarian alphabet. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so there was a moment of Bulgarians have a very deep sort of cultural connection to this alphabet. And it was really cool. The Booker they announced the prize on, on midnight at the 23rd of May and the 24th of May in Bulgaria is the Bulgarian, the day of the Bulgarian alphabet. And so the entire country was just like ecstatic. Wow. So wow. I think, you know, for Georgi and I, there was this moment of we wanted to keep that. And I think there's, it uses, he uses drawings, he uses, mm -hmm. you know, different kinds of speech. So we felt like it was almost like having an illustration. There's some of his own uh, personal, Georgi's personal illustrations in the book. So that mm -hmm. using Georgi's native alphabet was almost another way of illustrating that. So we, we felt very strongly that we wanted to keep it. And luckily the editors were willing to go with it. The day that the prize was announced, I talked about it on my Instagram account. And one of my followers who is Bulgarian, sent me pictures of queues in Sofia of people queuing to buy the book. It and it, it, it sounded completely crazy. I mean, yeah. uh, and, and it, such great pride mm -hmm. in uh, in the literature. It was Yeah, no, and it was see. so cool the way it worked out because it was 10 o'clock more or less in London, but it was absolutely the stroke of midnight here on the day mm -hmm. of the Bulgarian alphabet. And it was just, it's been a very difficult time for Bulgaria politically. We've had this sort of political, ongoing political crisis. We've had five elections in two years. And I think there was a lot of kind of discouragement about are Bulgarians going to be able to unite at all, you know? And so just having something that everybody could feel happy about and feel celebratory, it was really a national holiday, the the announcement of the prize. Like, I mean, that, those pictures, Georgi had to be escorted by the police because it was like, they would have, <laughs> it probably would have stayed, you know, if he could have signed books for two days straight. It was, it was nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so happy for him and for Bulgaria and congratulations to the both of you. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about the process of collaborating with Georgi to translate the book. I think I saw somewhere a quote where you use the word duet. You work uh, as a duet with the author. Mm -hmm. So at what stage do you get involved? And 
what sort of disagreements might there have been in a collaboration? I mean, you're, you're a two person group, or there are inevitably going to be differences of opinion. I'm wondering where those lay and, <laughs> yeah. and how the process was to work together. Yeah, no, I've worked with Gary for maybe about 10 years. So we, um, I started working with him on you know, short stories, essays. Um, he started out as a poet, although I don't mm-hmm. think poetry is my strong suit as a translator, so I haven't maybe done mm-hmm. as much of his poetry. But a, a lot of his prose, we worked on some plays together, even an opera libretto, which was very interesting. Um, oh, wow. So, and we, I had translated his previous novel, so I feel like we kind of have an established working relationship. And he's really, I mean, he's an absolutely lovely person. I hope at some point you get a chance to meet him because he's very... He's very attentive to craft, which isn't necessarily something that has entered the Bulgarian sort of literary imagination. I know in the U.S. it's all about craft. MFA programs are people are used to sort of getting feedback, which, you know, Bulgarian authors, there isn't as much um, editing here. And so sometimes people feel a little bit nervous about you. Know, the translator is kind of the first person who's sticking their hands into the guts of the novel. Mm-hmm. And it can be kind of emotionally intense. But I feel like Georgi mm-hmm. has a very professional approach. And I mean, he certainly feels passionate about his work, but he has worked with enough translators. He's been translated into like 20 languages that he is able to have that distance to talk about, okay, you know, something might need to change. How could it change? So, I mean, it's, it's always been like a huge pleasure to work with him. And he's so generous with his time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, anytime I, I'm, and I'm lucky I live in Sofia because I can be like, Yori, let's have a beer. Let's have a coffee. Like I need to pick your brain. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, there's things where, you know, sometimes I will, because he speaks English quite well. Mm-hmm. I've heard interviews and he seems Yeah, he seems and, and so sometimes fluent, he'll yeah. say, you know, what about this? And I'll be like, no, Georgi, you have to trust me. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, like mm-hmm. believe me on this, like it sounds better like that. And there'll be cases where he'll, you know, really insist that he wants to keep something a certain way. And and I feel like we mm-hmm. we have a relationship where we're kind of, both of us know, you know, where we're willing to compromise and where we're not willing to compromise. And, and um and we haven't really had any, you know, super, you know, <laughs> knockdown drag out fights about anything. But um, and and the cool thing was is that I kind of felt like I, I was in the kitchen a little bit with this book because he gave me an excerpt to translate before he was even finished with the manuscript because his agent. Uh-huh. And some of his other um, people that he works with were really interested in seeing an, an, ex- an excerpt. So, and a few things did change. It's more or less like the beginning of the book, but some things did change. So I kind of got a chance to to talk about what our approach was going to be even before the book was completely finished in, in Bulgarian. So, um, no, mm-hmm. it's been an absolute pleasure to work with him. What would you say is particularly Bulgarian, if anything, about this novel? Are there any cultural touch points that you feel... Oh, that's a really Bulgarian way of telling a story or what should readers look out for in that respect? And and I'm thinking specifically, for example, there's a, a very metafictional aspect to the story where the author is connected to the narrator, is uh, the creator of the other main character, Gostin. Is that a Bulgarian trait in storytelling no, or, or think, what might be Bul- connected to that? Georgi was maybe more inspired by international literature, like people like Paul Auster. I know he, he's, he's been inspired. You know, I think the autofiction uh, maybe comes from his, his sort of erudition about international literature. But I think what's really mm-hmm. Bulgarian about Georgi's writing is his sense of humor. <laughs> like mm-hmm. very ironic, very black humor. I wouldn't say sarcastic, but definitely ironic. That's a very typical Bulgarian uh, storytelling device, shall we say. <laughs> Got it. And it is a very funny novel. Yeah, uh, yeah it's some, very funny yeah. considering like how heavy the themes are like Alzheimer's and, you know, World War Three yeah. and, you know, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think that's very typical Bulgarian. And I think 
also um, nonlinear structure. Like I'm somebody who came to Bulgaria to study music and folklore and this idea that you can kind of head down a, a narrative path, but then you kind of turn down a side corridor, maybe go off into a, a side story that, and then come back to the main story. That's, I would say, a result of the oral tradition, which, you know, was pretty mm. much alive and well until, you know, the early part of the 20th century. So that would be Yorgi's wow. grandparents, you know, had grown up essentially with this living tradition of oral storytelling and, and song. So I think that's pretty um, indicative of Bulgaria, of Bulgarian's storytelling. Because tradition. there's definitely a lot of twists and turns mm -hmm. in the story. Mm -hmm. The structure is mm -hmm. not necessarily that linear no. and, and at some points mm -hmm. are translated into different places. So that was pretty cool. You just mentioned uh, the word Alzheimer's. So memory and the loss of it uh, is, is a central element of the novel and this memory and the loss of memory has simultaneously in this really cool way medical political artistic repercussions in the novel without giving away too much of the novel it's it's almost weaponized by mm -hmm. countries and politics and so on is that a commentary on a certain mood in bulgaria or maybe more widely in europe is yeah, that few, is that what Georgi was mm -hmm. trying to express something about this nostalgia, maybe that we're wallowing in? Yeah, I'd say absolutely. I think there's something particularly Bulgarian in that Bulgaria was a communist country from you know 1944 to 1989, and so mm -hmm. there's a lot of trauma that has not been resolved. Like up until about five years ago, that period was not in the history books. Like history books mm -hmm. in schools just ended. In 1944, wow. people didn't know how to talk about it. Some people felt very, you know, had very positive nostalgic recollections of the social period. Some people had very negative. And there was mm. like the country as a whole hasn't had a reckoning about how do we talk about this part of our past? How do we remember it? What do we do when my memories don't match your memories? You know, everybody had a different personal experience. So I think there's definitely the Bulgarian element of that's a trauma that I think Bulgarian society is still is still processing. But also, Georgi is, is very European in his outlook. And I think he sees that this is not something that's specific to Bulgaria, like this rise of, you know, populists who are using nostalgia as a political tool. We see that in Hungary. We see that in Poland. Mm -hmm. We see that in, you know, Western Europe. We see it in the U.S. Mm -hmm. with Trump. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I think probably the, the initial impetus came from what's going on here in terms of Bulgarians struggling to make sense of their recent history, their lived memory and their lived history. But then also he saw those patterns are, are something very human, very universal. You know, how do we negotiate between our personal memories, which can be very positive of a time that is also very negative, you know, of these times in history that are, that, that are problematic, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. it, it's really interesting. Georgi in, in some of his interviews talks about how like he as a person love, he's very nostalgic. You know, he loves thinking about his childhood, going back in his mind. But as a member of society, it's very dangerous when all of us together start wanting to retreat into some imagined fictitious, you know, past. Mm. And, mm. and that's, and there's a tension there. And in the book, it's interesting that the tension is, again, without giving too much away, between different eras and the socialist era that you've just described mm -hmm. uh, is a big candidate for a sort of national remembrance. But there's yes. also <laughs> a period of uh, national awakening, I think, in the, yeah, the late, late 19th, 19th century, century yeah. mm -hmm. with a failed uprising. Mm -hmm. And so is that another form of nostalgia that you're, you're seeing in Bulgaria? Oh, or? huge. Yeah, absolutely. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, that was... I think like many European countries, Bulgaria, the 19th century was sort of a national when they were coming into their national identity. Bulgaria was liberated from the Ottoman Empire and, 
1878. So that is a huge part of the national narrative. And to this day, you know, I mean, my, I have a daughter in Bulgarian school and I see what they study in Bulgarian literature class and the history class. And that's a huge part of the, the Bulgarian discourse of their national identity. But it's mm-hmm. problematic because there's a big Turkish minority here and those people are mm-hmm. Bulgarians. And how do we integrate them if the narrative is us and them? Mm-hmm. What do we do with mm-hmm. our, our, our fellow citizens who are of Turkish descent? Or, you know, mm-hmm. there's things that to this day are, are very, you know, that, that, that whole pathos around the, around the uh, national liberation is, is, is very much alive and well and used politically by many different parties. You mentioned just now that uh, Georgi is uh, a big European, uh, and that's definitely in evidence in the book uh, in terms of parallels and references that I could detect. I thought the character of Gostin really reminded me of another book that I loved, Austerlitz by uh, W.G. Sebald, mm-hmm. which is another novel about a form of European memory. And I thought yes. this novel hit very similar notes in a really great way. Another major European work that's very much in evidence here is The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann, which is very well referenced throughout the book (laughs) Mm -hmm. in terms of the theme of a clinic, I guess, and Mm -hmm. the European Mm -hmm. allegory. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other literary connections or Mm -hmm. allegories regarding a a European view that you see in the book? Yeah, I think you're you're right on with with both of those. And and Thomas Mann, especially, I think Georgi definitely feels himself in conversation with those that great tradition of Thomas Mann. I mean, the whole idea of memory and time. I mean, you can't avoid that that book. Mm-hmm. But also, I think Proust, you know, in, in, in Search of Lost Time, that's another major influence, but also dialogue that 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 he's mm-hmm. having. I'd say Borges, absolutely. Funes, the Memorias, brings up a lot of these, you know, ideas of when is memory pathological? When is it dangerous mm-hmm. to the individual? I think that, you know, played a role in, in this as well. And I think Giorgi also is, as you mentioned earlier, very auto-referential. So a lot of it is kind of playing with his own Previous works like Gaustin showed mm-hmm. up in his poetry. I mean, maybe twenty mm-hmm. years ago, and so that's you know he has these things that kind of come up in his own his own. So work. he's a recurrent character yes. in the Georgi verse. Yes, uh, absolutely, he is. Yeah. <laughs> ah, how incredible! And, and how did he? Do you know how he originally emerged? Because he's he's quite a. Difficult character to grasp, and and so I'd be interested to know his evolution. In yeah, his it's work. a super interesting story, Gori. I've heard him talk about this in interviews. He basically had a dream about, and he saw the cover of this book, and it said Gaustin of Ar- Arles, 13th century. And so there was this idea that he was this early, like a medieval troubadour. And so he mm-hmm. said he had written a poem. This was back when he was primarily writing poetry, like a very short verse, and it wasn't really in Georgi's style. It was sort of more old fashioned. And so he signed it Gaustin of Arles <laughs> as a joke. And then he ran into a literary critic that said, you know, I've been at the, the library all day today. You've been, you know, driving me crazy. Who is this Gaustin of Arles? Yeah. <laughs> and so that kind of gave him the idea to kind of create more of a personality. And, and, and then he showed up quite a bit in his second novel, Physics of Sorrow. Gaustin mm-hmm. is also a character there. And again, he has this sort of double valence. He's, positive but then he also has a sort of negative a little bit of a dark side and and it's not clear where the line between the narrator and Gaustin is and that is taken to an extreme and then in in, in this third novel so yeah Gaustin is a, is a recurring figure and so you know the book got me thinking about where I might want to go back to in time which period I might want to relive uh and so I, I'd extend that question to you where might you 
if you could choose to bring back a period in, in whichever country, which period would it be and why? I think Georgi is fundamentally right. Um, he says that most people want to go back to the decade when they were young. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, usually like, you know, late childhood, early teens, that's when you're forming your identity. Like he said, you know, one person answered this question, I wish I could be 12 in every decade. And so I'm thinking, I, I must admit, I think he's right. I, cause when I, mm-hmm. my immediate response was like the eighties, you know, I was born in 1974. Mm-hmm. So for me, the eighties, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of like, music and popular culture were so formative. I think the book hits the nail on the head relative to Alzheimer's. I think people do want to connect to that period of their lives. They, they Yeah, there's a deep emotional imprint that's left by music, by smells, by things that aren't even that conceptual. And I think that was mm. really brilliant how Georgi tied that together there's this you know when you lose your memory there's still something there a song you might not remember your name but you'll remember a Mm -hmm. song a smell a taste you know that's it's such a beautiful comment on on who we are as people what makes our identity you know exactly and and again it connects a little bit to proust uh, the the sensations of of (laughs) youth and a great dialogue this book and and proust i'd love for uh, our listeners to get inspired uh, around uh, Bulgarian literature. Obviously, Time Shelter should be their first stop because it's uh, an excellent novel, really fun read and very thought-provoking. But aside from Time Shelter, what are some great Bulgarian books that you might recommend to somebody who's never entered that literary world? My favorite Bulgarian novel um, from the classical canon is mm-hmm. The Wolf Hunt. And I was lucky enough to be able to translate it for Archipelago oh. a couple of years back. And so I don't mean to be tooting my own horn as a translator, just not very many mm-hmm. of us. Um, <laughs> and it's such a brilliant book. It sounds kind of like it's about basically the nationalization of Bulgarian agriculture, which sounds like boring snoozer, but it's so basically this little town in northeastern Bulgaria in the 1940s, how individuals live history. So it's this group mm-hmm. of six guys that go on a wolf hunt. And some of them are pro-communist. Some of them are anti-communist. Some of them don't care. They've got other problems in their lives, you know? And it's just, he's such a brilliant psychologist. And he's so, again, funny. He has, like, uses language in this very clever way. And it's such a brilliant portrait of this little community of individuals living through these hugely dramatic historical events in a very personal way. So it's a brilliant wow. book. Again, very funny, very poignant. So Wolf Hunt by Vaila Petrov would be my recommendation. Fantastic. It sounds, I'm reading uh, at the moment, Dr. Zhivago. Yes. And, in that and I'm vein. feeling the same sort mm-hmm. of forces of history on, on individuals mm-hmm. going about their daily lives. Uh, so it sounds like a very similar, yeah, similar, yeah, yeah vibe. <laughs> my next question is a question I ask all my guests, which is, "What's your favorite book that I've never heard of?" I love this Canadian writer named Robertson Davies, and I've realized that he's not that popular. I don't know, you probably, have, mm-hmm. but he, you know, I think he's a brilliant novelist, kind of in the vein of Iris Murdoch, you know, that mm-hmm. A.S. Byatt, that sort of long novel, but I love his Deptford trilogy and recommend it to everyone. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? What's what's so great He's about basically it? he was a theater performer, director, but also mm-hmm. a writer and growing up in Canada. So it's a trilogy about early 20th century Canadian life, but it's these three different people. One of them is you know it's it's kind of it's very fanciful. Like you know one of them is is captured by the circus 
and goes on to have this really strange and interesting life. And it sounds very weird, but it's not as weird as I'm making it sound right now. I'm not mm-hmm. doing a very justice to the, then the other one is about this. Um, they're all connected, interconnected about this guy mm-hmm. who um, basically uh, is a school teacher, but has a very rich inner life. And he's obsessed with saints, even though he's mm-hmm. Protestant, he's not a Catholic, you know, <laughs> and it gets at mm-hmm. all these different layers of, Canadian and European history and society and in this century. It's really brilliant and funny, very funny. You know, very, he's again like a brilliant psychologist. And I think being someone in theater, he knows how to stage, stage a good play. So it's, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I would highly Great. recommend the Deptford trilogy to everyone. What's the best book that you've read in the last 12 months? I just recently finished reading Abdul uh, Razak Gurna's uh, Paradise. Oh yeah. Uh, to my shame, I had not heard, had not read him mm-hmm. before he won the Nobel Prize. But we actually mm-hmm. um, were at the Edinburgh Lit Festival last year in August, and he was there, and we had the chance to see him. And so I was like, okay, oh, wow. you know, I've got to rectify this um, hole yeah. in my <laughs> my reading knowledge. And it was such an interesting book. I mean, just about a world that I know nothing about, like sort of you know Africa right before mm-hmm. the European colonization, sort mm-hmm. of the heart of darkness. From the point of view of, of an African, yeah, yeah, you know, it's not an easy read. There's some disturbing things, but very beautiful insight into this period in time. Yeah, so I was, mm. I would, I would highly recommend that. What's a book that you find overrated? So Georgi will um, probably be mad at me if I say this, but I, I have a hard time with Proust. I know people love him, and I just, uh-huh. I love Thomas Mann, Magic Mountain. Mm-hmm. I'm on the same page, but. I felt like it was it was eating my vegetables getting through. I, I have to admit, I didn't get through all um, seven volumes. <laughs> Bruce is too dense. Uh, yeah, it was. I guess maybe I need to, maybe I'll try it again in 10 years and see if I've matured to. Um... <laughs> Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah. What single book would you take to a desert island? I love Dostoevsky and I always did. I felt like that was where I kind of became like a, a real reader for the first time. I discovered him as a high school student and just love and I kind of periodically go back to his work. So I would take Crime and Punishment. I think that's a book that that I can continue to reread and reread and keep finding new layers to. I can imagine and you could dive into it yeah, and yeah. find yeah, new elements, of course. Uh, and finally, what book changed your mind? I would say, and this may, might sound kind of weird on, on, on the surface, but I, I read like On Earth We Are Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vong. Mm-hmm. And I, in principle, I'm all, I totally support LGBTQ rights and, and immigrant rights. But what really kind of opened my mind to that book was how he talks so respectfully and so, um, gently about like poor white people. You know, it's the whole, I don't mm-hmm. know if you've read the book, but it's this really I beautiful. Um, he's sort of an LGBTQ writer. He, he was a, a refugee, I believe, from Vietnam who came mm-hmm. and grew up in kind of a rough part of Connecticut. And mm-hmm. he has this love story, but about, you know, people that maybe many of us dismiss as like white trash, but, you know, mm-hmm. how this really beautiful, poignant love story about how ravaged that community is by like the opioid crisis. And I felt like, you know, as maybe, you know, sort of typical white middle class progressive person from the US, we don't have much sympathy for, for poor white people in the US. And, and that's mm-hmm. maybe part of the problem with, you know, the whole political divide and not having empathy for people that are, you know, sort of, it's, it's kind of almost easier for me to have an empathy for someone like Ocean Vong, who's an immigrant mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. that to me was really kind of made me stop and think, about my own prejudices, about people that are that are in my own my own society, my own culture. So that's mm-hmm. it's a really gorgeous book. Uh, he's a poet, but it's a prose novel, but it's just so gorgeously written. 
That's all we have time for today. Uh, Angela Rodel, thank you so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to you about this uh, brilliant book, Time Shelter by Georgi Gospodinov, which recently won the International Booker Prize. And congratulations to the two of you for this great achievement and uh, a well-deserved achievement. Thank you. Thank you. It was an honor to talk to you. Here's a brief recap of the books Angela mentioned in her interview. As a recommendation for a great Bulgarian book, she mentioned the book Wolf Hunt by Ivelo Petrov, which was published in 1986, about the impact of the policies of communist government on a local farming village. Her favorite book that I've never heard of was The Deptford Trilogy by Robertson Davies, uh, which is a trilogy of novel written in the early 70s, and it's a series of interconnected novels which offer a slice of Canadian life and society. The best book of the last 12 months was Paradise by Abdul Razak Gorna, who won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. He's a writer from Tanzania, and he writes about that region of the world, also with regard to memory and nostalgia. The book that she found overrated was In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. It's a series of seven novels published in the early 20th century about the role of time and memory informing experiences and ultimately art and life. It's actually one of my favorite novels, so I'm going to have to agree to disagree with Angela on that one. The book that she would take to a desert island was Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky, published in 1866, as she feels she would be able to discover new elements and new layers of the novel with every rereading. And finally, the book that changed her mind was on Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong, which was published a couple of years ago, and it showed to her a real tolerance and understanding of poor white communities in the U.S., which have been demonized in recent years in the political debate, and she was very impressed that this tolerance and empathy came from a gay writer of Vietnamese heritage. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account at litwithcharles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.